I love a good nickname. It's like slang for your identity. Having had a few attributed to me over the years, none of them have really stuck. I am currently known as Pickles amongst my poker buddies, which is getting off pretty easy considering that other guys in the group got names like Swingers, Meat Sweats, and the Blackout Bandit. In fact, poker is responsible for countless nicknames and turns of phrases throughout history, like Wild Bill Hickok and Dead Man's Hand. James Butler Hickok was a spy, deputy, gunfighter, gambler, showman, actor, and folk hero from the mid-1800s. He was born in Homer, Illinois, I like him already, and his father, William Hickok, is said to have used their house as an underground railroad station. As a young man, James was an ace with a pistol who got into a fight wherein he and his rival fell into a canal, each man thinking they killed the other. They didn't. For fear of being arrested, James moved to Kansas Territory and joined a vigilante group, the Jayhawkers, where he met Buffalo Bill Cody, who hadn't actually earned the Buffalo title yet. Because Hickok thought he was a murderer, he decided to take on his father and deceased brother's name. William, and used the last name Haycock to become a constable in Johnson County, Kansas, before working for the short-lived Pony Express by way of a freight company between Independence, Missouri and Santa Fe, New Mexico, during which time he encountered a mother cinnamon bear who was walking along with her cubs, and shot her in the head, but the bullet ricocheted and she attacked Wild Bill by viciously biting his arm. Bill then drew his knife and slit the bear's throat. His injuries confined him to a hospital bed for four months with a crushed shoulder, arm, and chest, before being transferred to Nebraska and given the name Duck Bill because of his long nose and lips that stuck out, prompting him to grow a mustache and rechristen himself Wild Bill Hickok. Once healed from his bear wounds, Wild Bill worked as a stable hand out of the freight company's Rock Creek Station built on land purchased from David McCannells. In 1861, McCannells came into the freight station spouting threats, slamming counters, and raging about an overdue payment. Now, it's unclear who pulled the trigger, but either Bill or his manager killed David McCannells which was ruled to be in self-defense in their trial. 
And Bill Hickok felt so bad that he went to McCannell's widow, apologized, and gave her all the money that he had in his pocket. $35. Bill decided to become a wagon master for the Union Army in the Civil War, but was discharged before enlisting in the Kansas Brigade, where he found his old pal Buffalo Bill serving as a scout. It was during this time that Hickok supposedly worked undercover as a spy for the Union Army in Confederate territory, after which time he served as a marshal for the Springfield, Missouri Detective Police for a year before realizing that he hadn't been paid and decided to start gambling to cover his bills. Hickok was referred to as, quote, by nature, a ruffian a drunken, swaggering fellow who delighted, when on a spree, to frighten nervous men and timid women, end quote. In Springfield, he got into a fight with another gambler, Davis Tutt, over unpaid IOUs, the love of the same woman, and honor. You see, Bill had lost a sentimental gold watch to Tut, and he asked Davis not to wear it in public. Davis did, they dueled, and Bill won. He was charged with manslaughter, let out on $2,000 bail, and acquitted on account of it being deemed a fair fight. After losing the Springfield Marshall election of 1865, he left to be Deputy Federal Marshal of Kansas and sometimes serving with General George A. Custer's 7th Cavalry in the Indian Wars. He then reverted to James Hickok and, despite being known as, quote, an inveterate hater of Indians, end quote, he put together a band of six Native Americans to put on a Wild West show in Niagara Falls called the Daring Buffalo Chasers of the Plains. After a few years, all that roughhousing must have had an effect on Bill's psyche. He had an altercation at a Jefferson County saloon involving one cowboy pushing Wild Bill and knocking the drink out of his hand, and Hickok punched him. And then the dude's four buddies drew their guns before Bill convinced them to settle things outside, where he readily killed three of them with a bullet to the head and wounded the fourth through the cheekbone. Hickok got shot in the shoulder and moved on to serve as Deputy U.S. Marshal in Hayes City, Kansas, where he apprehended Union Army deserters carrying government property, hired Buffalo Bill Cody to assist as a sergeant, and also employed 200 Cheyenne Show Indians to be witnessed by excursionists 
before being elected city marshal of Hayes and sheriff of Ellis County, Kansas, and got off to a rough start as sheriff as well, killing two men within a month. The first, Bill Mulvey, said that he had come to town to kill Hickok while drunkenly riding through and shooting out shop windows. Mulvey pointed his rifle at Hickok, who cleverly yelled, quote, Don't shoot him in the back, he's drunk, end quote, causing Mulvey to turn around and face his phantom assailants. He'd been bluffed. Hickok shot him dead through the head. The second man he killed that year was another drunken cowboy, Samuel Strawn, who had caused quite a ruckus at the local saloon. Shortly thereafter, Bill was assaulted by a couple of comrades from the 7th U.S. Cavalry in another tavern, one man holding him down and the other putting a gun to Hickok's head that misfired. Bill quickly shot one in the knee and killed the other. He was not re-elected. Trouble would follow Bill to his next venture, filling the void left by Abilene, Kansas's recently killed Marshall. Resident gamblers Ben Thompson and his partner Co. established the Bull's Head Saloon in town and painted a bull with a massive erect penis on the side of the building, much to the dismay of the townsfolk who complained to their new marshal about the offensive picture. After Hickok asked them to remove the image, they attempted to hire a hitman to assassinate Hickok with the pitch, quote, He's a damn Yankee. Picks on rebels, especially Texans, to kill, end quote. To which the approached hired gun said, quote, If Bill needs killing, why don't you kill him yourself, end quote. Resigning Co. to threaten Hickok that he could, quote, kill a crow on the wing, end quote. Hickok replied, quote, did the crow have a pistol? Was he shooting back? I will be, end quote. When Wild Bill ordered him to be arrested, Co. fired two errant shots, claiming that he was shooting at a stray dog, all the while raising his weapon to draw on Hickok, who shot Co. dead causing some in the area to run towards the chaos, which was how Bill accidentally killed Special Deputy Marshal Mike Williams. Hickok never got over it, lost his job two months later, and reluctantly joined Buffalo Bill's new shoot 'em up show, but was soon let go from that job after intentionally shooting out spotlights. By 1876, Hickok was 39 years old with glaucoma and one, possibly two, wives. 
Martha Jane Canary, Calamity Jane, claimed in her autobiography to have married Hickok, but divorced him so he could marry another. Now, there is no paperwork to support this claim, but there is proof he married Agnes Lake, a circus owner and 11 years his elder. Bill left Agnes after a couple of months in the hopes of striking gold in South Dakota. Ominously, before dying, he wrote her a letter which said, quote, Agnes Starling, if such should be we never meet again, while firing my last shot, I will gently breathe the name of my wife, Agnes, and with wishes even for my enemies. I will make the plunge and try to swim to the other shore, end quote. And on August 1st, 1876, Bill was playing poker at Nuttle and Man Saloon in Deadwood, South Dakota, when an intoxicated gambler named Jack McCall joined the game and began to lose big time. And Bill urged Jack to walk away and even offered him money for food, which he begrudgingly took. The following day, Bill was playing poker again at the same spot. Well, almost. See, Hickok liked to have his back to the wall so he could see the entrance of the saloon. But the only seat available when he joined the table was facing the opposite way. Not long after sitting down, a heated Jack McCall burst into the saloon, put his Colt Model 1873 Single Action Army 45 caliber revolver up to Bill's head and screamed, quote, Damn you! Take that! End quote, and shot Hickok, killing him instantly. The bullet went through Bill's cheek and hit another player, Charlie Rich, in the wrist. Bill's funeral was heavily attended, and Calamity Jane's dying wish was to be buried next to him. And she was, 27 years later. Also buried next to Hickok, another Deadwood celebrity named Potato Creek Johnny. There is some debate as to whether McCall killed Hickok because of the insulting food money thrown at him the day before, or, as Jack had claimed, because Bill had shot his brother Lou McCall, who was known to have been executed by an unidentified lawman in Abilene, Kansas. Jack was acquitted of murder, however, he couldn't help but brag about killing Hickok and was later re-arrested legally because the first trial happened in Indian country. Therefore, it was not technically double jeopardy. This time, Jack McCall was sentenced to death and hanged. Scatter curiosity... 
1881, the cemetery Jack McCall was buried in was moved, and when his body was exhumed, the noose was still around his neck. While Bill Hickok was playing five-card stud and held what has come to be known as Dead Man's Hand when he was killed, the two black aces, known as bullets, rockets, batteries, or teepees, along with the two black eights, sometimes referred to as snowmen, fat ladies, or whirlitzer, with an unknown kicker or high card, rumored to be the Queen of Hearts or the Queen of Clubs. But this kicker is not confirmed. Gary Cooper portrayed Hickok in the 1936 movie The Plainsman that centers on Bill and Jane's love affair and ends with Dead Man's Hand. And it is only slightly less fictional than the very hyperbole 1995 film Wild Bill, starring Jeff Bridges as Wild Bill and David Arquette as Jack McCall. And of course, the vastly popular HBO series Deadwood, soon to be a movie, gets started with Bill and Jane coming to the town of Deadwood together. In 1979, James Butler Hickok was inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame and is one of three inductees to die while playing the game. The others were Tom Abdo, who died of a heart attack after asking a fellow player to count his chips and save his seat. And the other Hall of Famer to die while playing was Treetop Jack Strauss, for whom the poker mantra, a chip and a chair, is attributed. Dead Man's Hand is just one of hundreds of nicknames for card combinations, many of which I will highlight today, that have been incorporated into pop culture since the 1920s. James Patterson's Along Came a Spider has a character that talks about her dad winning a gun with aces and eights. In Batman R.I.P., the Joker sends a message to the Dark Knight by dealing Dead Man's Hand with a twist. The twist being that the eights are red and the kicker is a Joker. In One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, McMurphy has aces and eights tattooed on his hand. Classic Western director John Ford used it as foreshadowing in a couple of his films. In Stagecoach, the cards are held by Luke Plummer, Tom Tyler, before he's shot by the Ringo Kid, John Wayne. Liberty Valance gets the hand before dying in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And in the fifth episode of Quantum Leap, How the Test Was Won, someone tries to fix a game dealing Dead Man's Hand to Sam's romantic counterpart. Oh boy. There are songs titled Dead Man's Hand by Ha Ha Tonka, The Church, and Motorhead, who also wrote The Ace of Spades, 
Quote, read him and weep the dead man's hand again. End quote. Rambling Gambling Willie by Bob Dylan goes, quote, when Willie's cards fell on the floor, they were aces backed with eights. End quote. Aces and eights is a title from Uncle Cracker in addition to Lita Ford. Bob Seger's Fire Lake has a lyric, quote, who's going to play those aces and eights, end quote. I Am the Storm by Blue Oyster Cult croons, quote, aces and eights are the fate that you drew, end quote. And Creepin' by Eric Church depicts Dead Man's Hand with a two, a.k.a. duck or deuce, of hearts as the kicker. Put on your poker face for today's name colliery, Nickels, Bullets, Boats, and the Pickle Man. Playing cards were invented in 9th century Tang Dynasty China by use of woodblock printing technology, but they did not have suits and numbers like the cards we know today. They instead had commands to be executed by the drawer of the card. Within 200 years, playing cards sprang up in Egypt and Istanbul, not Constantinople, whose packs consisted of 52 cards. Four suited cards were commonplace in Europe as early as the mid to late 1300s with suits conforming to the flair of their locality, like leaves, roses, hearts, shields, acorns, bells, cups, swords, coins, pikes or spades, and clovers or clubs. Worldwide, there are thousands of card games, but poker and its many variations has its origins in the United States, specifically New Orleans. The 52-unit deck of 13 cards ranked from two to aces per each of the four suits became standard in 1834. Now, a flush hand in poker is five cards of the same suit. If they are also in numerical sequence, it is a straight flush, the highest of which being a royal flush, the best hand in poker. The suits themselves have nicknames. Clubs are called a golf bag or puppy prince. Diamonds are well-dressed or decked out. Hearts are Valentine's Day or a heartbreaker, depending on if you win or lose. And spades are a laborer's flush. A card company's logo is usually reserved for the Ace of Spades, the death card, something that started when King James I decreed that a marking be put on it 
to prove that taxes were paid on the deck, which was then sealed with official government wrapping. Kings are the oldest and most common court card and were the uppermost ranking until the 1500s when Trapola became the earliest game where aces were supreme. The King of Hearts is supposed to be Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor and the King of France, is the only one without a mustache, and is also known as the Suicide King because of its red color, and he appears to be stabbing himself in the head with his sword. The King of Clubs is Alexander the Great of Macedonia. The King of Spades is King David of Old Testament Israel. And the King of Diamonds is Julius Caesar, the sole one-eyed king, also referred to as the man with the axe, because all the other kings have swords. A pair of kings is commonly referred to as cowboys, King Kong, or Krispy Kreme. Conversely, queens are known as cowgirls, ladies, dames, hens, and Canadian rockets, with the specific assignments of the Queen of Spades as the Bedpost Queen, Black Lady, Calamity Jane, Molly Hogan, Dirty Gertie, or Athena. The Queen of Clubs is Argyne, the Flower Queen. The Queen of Hearts is Helen of Troy. And the Queen of Diamonds is Rachel. Jacks, or Knaves, are the lowest face card and play like an 11 between Tens and Queens. Estella, the sassy girl in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, is quick to point out that Pip, quote, calls the knaves Jacks, this boy, end quote. Four years after The Inimitable's book came out, an American producer of playing cards, Samuel Hart, used a J instead of K-N to assign this lowest court card because K-N could easily be confused with K for king. Ever since the 17th century, a jack was considered to be low class, though the jack has been promoted to a higher position in many card games like All Fours, Black Maria, Cribbage, Egyptian Rat Screw, Hearts, Jass, 500, 45s, Lou, Napoleon, Primero, Ma, Naughty, Reverses, Pinochle, Rough, Scat, Spoil 5, and 28. Like the other court cards, each jack is supposed to represent an actual person. Ogier the Dane was a knight to Charlemagne and is the one-eyed jack of spades because it is depicted in profile. Lahire, a French warrior, is the one-eyed jack of hearts. 
Hector, a hero from the Iliad, is the Jack of Diamonds, also known as Laughing Boy. And Lancelot is the Jack of Clubs. Nicknames for Jacks are Boy, Fishhook, Hook, Jaybird, Jayboy, Jackal, Jake, John, Johnny, Eunuch, Valet, and Knight. The Joker is an entirely American addition to playing cards from 1860, invented for the game Euchre, which immigrated to the U.S. from Europe during the Revolutionary War. Jokers are the highest trump card in the game and rumored to come from the word Juker, which is another name for Euchre. By 1875, Jokers evolved into wild cards for games that used them, like Pagliacci and Old Maid. Jokers are not used in standard poker, which is also an American addition to the jillions of card games in existence. Straight poker is the oldest version of the game, wherein players are dealt a complete hand followed by one round of betting. Invented in the brothels and saloons of New Orleans, Louisiana, poker is based on a player's best five cards. Variants of this game were also played during the American Revolutionary War on both sides, namely Primero and Three Card Brag. While Bill Hickok was playing the second oldest form of the pastime, stud poker, when he was killed. Five-card stud, to be exact. In stud, every active player posts an ante, a small amount thrown into the pot, the money in the middle, to receive cards and is dealt two cards face down, known as hole cards, ever heard the expression having an ace in the hole, that are also called pocket cards, which is why being dealt two aces is called pocket rockets. Supplementary to your pocket cards, a third card is dealt face up before a round of betting. A fourth card is dealt face up, followed by betting. And finally, fifth street is dealt in the hole. Seven card stud is basically the same game with more rounds of betting. But you are still only using your best five cards to make your hand. Variations of seven card stud are Midnight Baseball, Black Mariah Stud, San Francisco Stud, English Stud, Six Kick Stud, Russian Revolution Stud, Follow the Queen, and Chicago Stud. But some fun fives are Five Card Stud Balls Poker, Five Card Indian Poker, and Five Card Stud Satan Poker. Draw poker differs from stud poker in that a player is dealt a complete hand in the hole 
and draws new whole cards to improve his or her hand. Strip poker is also said to have been conceived in NOLA brothels and can be played with any contradistinction of the game, usually straight poker because there are fewer rounds of betting. While designed to be a fun way to elevate the venereal vibe at a party, strip poker is not considered to be sexual. And there are even webcam sites where you can play strip poker against a live person that has since spun off into all sorts of strip-themed sports betting. Ah, the internet. Community card poker, also called flop poker, gives players an incomplete hand in the hole and they combine their pocket cards with face-up community or door cards shared by all players to make the best five-card combo possible. Community card poker includes games like Crazy Pineapple, Omaha Hold'em, Greek Hold'em, and the Cadillac of poker, Texas Hold'em. This is the game that you see on ESPN and the one that we will be outlining today. Texas Hold'em is said to have come from the mind of Poker Hall of Famer T. Blondie Forbes in Robstown, Texas, but brought to the California Club in 1963 by another inductee, Fenton Corky McCorkadale, where the game soon spread to the Golden Nugget, Stardust, and Dunes casinos, where it was held with esteem by famed Texas gamblers Thomas Amarillo Slim Preston, Dandy Crandall Addington, and Doyle Texas Dolly Brunson. Addington liked Hold'em because it was more strategic than five-card draw as there are four rounds of betting versus two, a thinking man's game. A mix of percentages, psychology, probability, gaming theories, and of course, a little bit of luck. Since 1971, a no-limit Texas Hold'em tournament has been the main event for the World Series of Poker, or WSOP. More on that and the Hall of Fame later. Admittedly, I am not a qualified expert of most topics discussed on this program, but I am quite well-versed in Texas Hold'em, so I finally, truly know what the F I'm talking about today. Lucky you. Allow me to quickly outline the basics of the game for you beginners, in addition to highlighting terms, slang, strategies, hand nicknames, and often misunderstood rulings for you seasoned players. This is the typical setup for a Texas Hold'em poker game, be it at home, office, or casino. First, Everyone needs to know the table stakes, 
the minimum or maximum buy-in established by the house or casino hosting the game. Most commonly, 20 times the minimum bet. Many casinos have a minimum $100 buy-in and a maximum of $2,000 for lower stakes tables. Open stakes allow players to buy in for any amount they wish. Once stakes are established, it then needs to be decided what the betting limits will be. Fixed limit, pot limit, or no limit. No limit is how the WSOP is played and the type of game that I prefer. If you're going to hit your lucky hand, you want to cash in on that and be able to go all in, also called pushing or pulling the trigger. The nice thing about being all in, there's no more decisions to make. You are in it until the end and cannot be bluffed out. In pot limit poker, you can only bet up to the amount of what is in the pot by saying raise the pot or just pot. And fixed limit games make bluffing almost impossible because of the restrictions on overbetting poker chips or casino tokens for which money is exchanged at the cashier at a casino or whoever is handling the cash at a home game. You may wonder why chips and not just cash. Well, studies show that people gamble more when they use chips versus real money. And it makes it very easy for the dealer to make change. It also discourages people from grabbing all the money in the pot and running off with it because chips are worthless until you cash them out. Good luck robbing any casino. They're watching you. Most casino tokens are erroneously called clay chips but are actually a combination of different materials like chalk, sand, and the clay that is used in kitty litter. New Jersey and Illinois have specific color designations for chip amounts with white as a dollar, red as $5, green as $25, and black as $100. But in Las Vegas, the colors are left up to the casino. Scatter curiosity, in 19th century America, Blue chips were reserved for high money values, and the term blue chip is still used today, like a blue chip stock. Bonus curiosity, because the number 8 is lucky in China and the Chinese like to gamble, it is not uncommon to see $8.00. $88 and $888 valued chips printed with whichever animal represents the current Chinese lunar year. Chips above $5,000 are usually not seen in the general casino and are only found on high stakes tables. Outside of Las Vegas, casinos do not cross honor chips 
but within the city limits, the tokens are widely accepted as cash amongst taxis, restaurants, and other vendors. The chips used for poker tournaments are solid colors with no branding of real cash value, rendering them worthless outside of the game. Finally, it must be decided whether it will be a cash game or a tournament, which differs slightly in the way that they are structured, but the rules are still the same. In a cash game, the minimum open bet does not change, a player can buy in for the established table stakes, and if they become short-stacked or hit the felt, i.e. lose all their chips, they can buy back in. And at any point, they can decide to leave with their winnings. However, for tournament play, everyone buys in for the same amount of money and starts with the same stack size, more accurately described as points, as minimum bet amounts rise periodically to eventually end up with one winner, like the World Series of Poker. What's nice about tournaments is there is an end to the game, and you can only lose your buy-in. I like this style of play for beginners because you can have a tournament with $5 stakes, giving each player 3000 in chips, with one $5 rebuy option for those who get knocked out. On a table of nine players, there is a possible $90 jackpot available for only a $5 to $10 investment. And if you lose, who cares? It's five bucks. Done right, your poker night could see three or four full games. Tournament strategies differ from cash games because of a race with the clock. Therefore, I play hands in tournaments I would never play in a cash game. Some advice? Count the deck before playing. I promise you this is a good practice that will help you avoid a mountain of heartache. However, it should be noted that playing with a short deck does not affect the results of the hand, but it surely messes up the betting strategy and really gets people mad. Once the bank is right, the dealer shuffles the deck twice, quarters it, shuffles one last time, and halves the deck on top of the cut card, a plain colored plastic card that most home games do not employ, but should be used in all games. It covers the bottom card so the dealer cannot expose it as he or she passes out the cards. It also prevents cheating by means of dealing from the bottom of the deck. One small blind in first position and one big blind in second position take the place of full table antes, and each player is dealt two cards in the hole clockwise 
from the dealer button, or buck, which is moved after every hand along with the blinds. After everyone receives their pocket cards, they decide if they want to call or match the big blind, raise it, or muck their cards, fold them, leaving the third position player under the gun with the first action pre-flop. Assuming all players either call or fold past the button, the small blind then has a chance to cold call a weak hand at half price before the big blind has the final option in round one to smooth call, flat call, or slow play their option by checking or raising, opening the possibility of a re-raise. Verbal declarations are binding. If I make a bet and you put two or more chips into the pot that is enough to qualify as a raise twice the previous bet or more, that is the assumed bet. But if I bet $20 and you toss in a $100 chip without saying raise, it is officially a call even if you wanted to raise me. Verbal declarations are binding, and forward motion is the general rule for betting. If you pick up a huge stack of chips and move your hand forward, but just drop two of them into the pot, it is not technically a legal bet. Instead, everything in your hand during the forward motion is the bet. After all bets are in and the pot is right, the dealer will discard or burn the next card face down to prevent cheating and flop the first three community cards face up. The player directly to the left of the buck, the small blind in first position, has the initial opportunity to open betting for the next three rounds, giving the player with the button the final betting options for the rest of the hand. If there are no bets on the board prior to a player's action, they can choose to check or pass without betting by saying check or simply knocking on the table. Take note, however, you cannot check pre-flop unless you are the big blind and nobody else raises, known as a big blind special. A favorable situation if you have a poor to mediocre hand like Granny May, Queen 5. It costs you nothing more than what you owe to stay in, as opposed to a blind defense where... You raise your big blind with the comparably weak hand, quicks, queen six. Once the dealer collects all bets, distributes change, and the pot is correct, the dealer burns the top card again and flips one face up, known as the turn or fourth street. By the way, you should keep your whole cards hidden 
so as not to give anyone else information on the table. Conversely, you should never comment on the cards that you've folded because it will affect the play of the people who are still in the hand. Throwing or pushing a handful of chips into the middle is known as splashing the pot and is considered poor etiquette because it can make the bet difficult to discern from the rest of the pot. After the turn, another round of betting commences, followed by the last burn in turn, known as the river card. This is the final round of betting. Calling a river bet with what you believe to be a losing hand, say Big Lick, 6-9, a.k.a. Prom Night or Dinner 4-2, is known as a crying call. However, calling a river bet holding Big Brother, 8-4, or a double down, 7-4, with only a paired 4 on the board, but thinking the other person is totally bluffing with a missed Applejacks, Ace-Jack, is known as a hero call. If a player bets everyone out, they win and do not have to show their whole cards. Though if it comes to a showdown, a heads-up situation with two players, they reveal and combine their whole cards with the community cards on the board to determine a winner based on the ranking scale of high card, one pair, two pair, three of a kind, known as trips or a set, a straight, five cards in numerical order, a flush, a full house, known as a boat, which is three of a kind plus a pair, four of a kind, straight flush, and royal flush. If your hand is made or unbeatable, you possess the nuts. Ties are broken by the remaining high card or kicker, but if the player kickers tie, the pot is chopped or split between them. At the completion of the hand, the dealer button orbits clockwise one seat, blinds are posted, and the process repeats, raising blinds every 12 minutes or so. If the first or second card dealt is exposed, it is ruled a misdeal and the hand is dead. Should a card be exposed beyond the first two, the dealer continues and gives the misdealt player a new card after delivering everyone else with their due whole cards, effectively trading the burn card for the misdealt one. If more than one card is exposed, either by dealer error or a boxed or face-up card in the deck, the hand is declared dead and re-dealt. Same is true if a player gets too many cards, usually because of old or wet cards sticking together. Also, if cards are discovered to be marked or damaged in any way, they are dead. If you declare a fold, your hand is dead. 
if cards are tossed into someone else's hands, a real dick move that I've actually seen in a casino, they are dead. Which is why I encourage everyone to use a card protector. Something to place on top of your whole cards to guard them from such dickish opponents. I use a big old Chinese coin, but you can personalize it however you like. A Pez dispenser, flash drive, lighter, lucky rock, even a chip from your stack will suffice. Furthermore, you must act on your turn and never before, as it is also bad poker etiquette and could end up costing you if you get too excited with your pocket rockets. If you check or bet out of turn, you are held to that and you cannot call or raise. Wait your turn. And be mindful that putting money out for a bet and then going back to your stack for more chips is called a string bet and is not allowed. Nor is touching another player's chips, which will get you booted from most card rooms. Poker is a game that can be learned in an evening and takes a lifetime to perfect. Beyond knowing the rules of the game, there is a whole vocabulary of strategies and slang that coincide with this sport that we are going to get conversant with today. And full disclosure, I am not a professional poker player, but have clocked in over 10 years of steady play. So my advice is not without merit. Let's start with the rake, a small percentage that the house takes from each pot in a casino poker game to keep dealers from cheating. It is the only way for them to make money off of poker because you are not playing against the house, which already puts the odds in your favor over other casino games. In a house game, the rake is referred to as the juice or vig, which gets added to the kitty to be used for pizza and refreshments. I prefer BYOB. Like other sports, poker players can be superstitious and are often known to play in dirty, lucky clothes. But sometimes such uniforms can work against them. A player that pulls the hood up from his lucky sweater every time a scare card comes on 5th Street to disguise his or her blank stare poker face could be a revealing tell. Which is why many people wear hats, hoodies, sunglasses, and headphones to mask these tells. If they check the flop, the turn, and an ace comes on the river, that ace is the scare card. It is likely the one that somebody has been drawing for and hit, or not, which is why sometimes this is your moment to bluff like you caught your ace. But beware, someone else maybe did. Maybe. 
And even if they did, it could be a middle or weak ace, like ace-6 or ace-8, and are worried that you are betting an ace with a better kicker. While ace-8 is not an optimal hand, it beats ace-6 head-to-head. One common tell that occurs when a player has a strong hand is leaning forward or backward. Beware of these mother bluffers. Bluffing is a whole episode in and of itself. I don't recommend doing it often, but you must do it sometimes if you want to protect your blinds and stack like you do your cards. One way is a bluff induce, which is to bet overly strong with a powerhouse hand like Cowboys to make people think that you are bluffing and hopefully baiting them to call your bluff with one of their own. Bluffing happens when you don't have the best hand, but bet like you do. Yet if you do it with a weak hand that has a chance of getting better, like Kuwait, Queen 8, it is called a semi-bluff. A value bet is a small wager that you put out in the hopes that weaker hands, like Dolly Parton, 9-5, will call you. A click raise is the minimum raise you can do, usually twice the amount of the bet, though different houses have different rules on this amount, but double is standard. It is sometimes hard to discern when a player should bluff. And if you are new to it, I salute a system whereby you play position. I cannot tell you how many times I am asked how I would play a particular hand and frustrate people with my answer. It depends on my position. Playing position is an entirely strategic way to play the game. Most poker noobs do not like being small or big blind, but also do not consider the benefits that come along with them. It is a marvelous position for the first round of betting. Big blind gets the last option. If everyone else simply limps in or calls, the big blind could play position and raise. Even with a subpar hand, like a Bow Wow, King 9, Kate, King 8, Kicks, King 6, Knives, King 5, and Forks, King 4. Such a position play often results in chasing away the donkeys, raccoons, and fish who are trying to limp in with a suited lumberjack, Jack Tree. Winning by these means is called a walk or buying the pot. After the initial round of betting, however, the player with the dealer button then possesses the ultimate position for the remainder of the hand. Usually, the first person to bet wins. Since a full poker table is 9 or 10 players, The first three are in early position, the next three are in middle position, and the final three or four are in late position, 
Most casinos will allow the person next to the big blind to straddle before the cards are dealt, effectively doubling the blind and making themselves the big blind regarding having last option in the first round of betting. This is only ever done in cash games. A Mississippi straddle is similar, except anyone at the table can do it not just the person to the left of the big blind. Why would anyone ever do this? Because late position players have more information than early positions, giving them a strategic advantage. I would advise against always playing position, though, as it can be as much of a tell as your hoodie behavior. While it is good to adopt a style of play, it is also wise to switch your style up and choose opportune times to show your cards. Players can be loose, tight, or passive. Aggressive competitors usually bet first and raise more often than checking or calling. Conversely, a calling station is a person who seems to call every bet, but rarely raises. They are loose and passive, and I kind of love them until they beat my ladies with a beer hand, 7-2 whip, the worst hand in poker. Beware when they raise. A lag is someone who plays loose-aggressive. They will pay you off if you are patient. A gypsy, usually just calls the bet or blind without raising, kindred to a rock or grinder, a very tight player who folds a lot, calls sometimes, and only plays premium hands like suited royal cards. I play with a tight aggressive approach, designed to take down pots without a showdown. Though I tend to loosen up if I have a big stack at the table and an opportunity to eliminate someone from the tournament. A card shark or sharp is a professional player akin to a rounder who travels around looking for big stakes games. I wouldn't worry too much about coming across these players when you're getting started and playing for what they would consider to be chump change. They don't want to play with you anyway. New players are too unpredictable and make nonsensical moves that are difficult to read. There is no bigger baby in the world than a seasoned poker player being taken out by a noob who catches perfect with a backdoor straight draw, i.e. chasing the only two possible cards left that can make their hand. It is important to count your outs, the cards left in the deck that can help you, and not allow your opponents to catch their cards. Make them pay to play. No free cards, and put them on the defensive by understanding the likelihood of your draws and theirs. For example, a gut shot straight draw is not a favorable hand. I prefer an open-ended draw. The difference? Outs. 
if you are holding Maxwell Smart 8-6 and the flop comes out as a 7-5-2 rainbow with all different suits, you have an open-ended straight draw because any 4 or any 9 gives you a straight. You have 8 outs in the deck. A gut shot straight draw would be if the flop revealed the door cards of 5-9-queen rainbow. Now, only a 7 can make your straight. 4 outs, cutting your odds of winning in half. It's still better than drawing dead, though. Say you have a 5-2 bomber, like the B-52s, and you are up against a 5-7 pickle man on 4th Street with a 5572 on the board. Even though you have a full house, you are drawing dead. Even if you catch another deuce, you cannot win. This differs from drawing live or drawing thin when the only choices are to fold or to bet over the top with a bluff. But this only works if your bluff is a continuation bet, or C-bet, from earlier betting rounds. If you bet big pre-flop and then check the flop, it broadcasts to the table that you have not hit your hand. However, continuing to bet big again after the flop signals that the hand is strong and wants callers. This is an important distinction to understand. With any of the flop scenarios that I just used, a C-bet could help you buy the pot. A check-raise is a great move when you are bluffing and even when you're not, usually done in early position. If I have King Kong in first position and bet too much, everyone might fold. If I check and let someone else bet and a bunch of others call, I can then raise that bet and hopefully get others to drop out, possibly buying the pot, or at the very least, limiting my opponents. And while I like this move, if I'm holding cowboys, I'm betting big before the flop even comes out. I do not want a lot of callers with this hand, especially by someone holding a weak ace, and I have zero problem just taking down the blinds and moving on to the next hand to discourage a behind player from backing into a pot and winning with a sweet 10-6. Getting counterfeited is almost worse than allowing your opponent to back into a pot. Say you have a 10-7 split, think bowling, and the flop comes out ace-7-10. Awesome, you flop two pair. Then the turn is an ace, the river is a queen, and you lose to someone holding a queen to daisy. But wait, they only have a pair of queens, right? Wrong. The two aces on the board are the top pair for both of you. He has two pair, aces and queens with the 10 kicker, and you have two pair, 
aces and tens with a queen kicker. Your sevens were counterfeited and do not play because you cannot have three pair. It's the best five card combo. Connectors are some of my favorite hands and are also not without their nicknames. The pinnacle would be Ace-King, also called Big Slick, King Arthur, Korean Airlines, or Anna Kornikova, and not just for her initials, but because it, quote, looks better than it plays, end quote. A maverick is living on Jackson Queens. A countdown is 10-9. 7-8 is an RPM. 7-6 is Union Oil or Trombones. A 4-5 Billy D. Williams or Jesse James is named for different kinds of Colt 45. 3-4 is a Waltz. 2-3 is known as LeBron, Beckham, Mattingly, or Jordan. All of them wore 23 on their jerseys. And King Queen is a Ricky Lucy or an Aerosmith for their song Kings and Queens. King-Queen suited is a marriage. Off-suit is called a mixed marriage. And if they lose, it is a divorce. A middle pocket pair in the hole is the time you should bet big pre-flop. You want few, if any, callers. Such a hand would be cherries, 6-6. And after the flop... You should bet them big again if there is a dry board like 8-2-9-4 on the turn, when the community cards make it unlikely that anyone has a good hand. In these situations, your competitors are usually holding each other's outs with a Jack Daniels, Jack 7, a Motown, Jack 5, a high five, ace five, thrace, ace three, and a Woolworth five and dime, five ten. Pre-flop pocket pairs are great, and you should always bet them. From Wayne Gretzky or Loof Balloons, nine nine. Candy Cane's mullets or axes, seven seven. Or nickels, five five also called Sammy Hagar, who cannot drive 55. An overpair in the hole would be one that is bigger than the highest card on the board. Bet this hand. Do not let weaker hands draw you out by getting runner-runner. Overs are something like Katie, King-10, when all the other door cards are lower. If everything on the board beats your pocket hand, then you are playing the board. A sandbag is the same as a slow play. If I have acey Ducey of hearts and the flop comes out 3-7-10 of hearts, I have the best possible hand at the moment. Not quite the nuts yet, I could still be beaten, but will very likely win. If I bet too big, everyone will fold and I will make no money. This is a great situation in early position. 
If I check, they will hopefully bet, and I will simply call. This is a good risk to take. In later position, though, I would throw out a low-value bet to try to trap players with my no-free card rule. Try to fold and avoid playing junk hands like Joe Montana, 4-9, a 10-4 trucker's hand, or Jack Shit, Jack Deuce. They cannot be connected by a straight. Even suited, they are not strong cards. Fold, unless you are a blind. Check it down if you can, or bet big with them pre-flop. If they hit and you bet again, people will think you are making a C-bet on high hole cards that did not hit. But be weary of getting pot committed, which happens when the pot is so big compared to your chip stack that you must go for the money by calling even with a poor to mediocre hand. A protected pot is tough to bluff because somebody has the nuts. It is better if you can get short stack protection by shoving all in and having a bigger stack also go all in instead of merely snap calling and scaring everyone else off. Now you only have to beat them. You are protected. While James Butler Hickok was inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame 103 years after he died, another inductee, Edmund Hoyle, father of the card game Whist, and for whom we get the saying according to Hoyle, died 60 years before poker was even invented. Hoyle was adept to tutoring the British elite in game strategy, prompting him to write Mr. Hoyle's treatises of whist, quadrille, piquet, chess, and backgammon, along with a treatise on the card game Bragg and a book on probability theory, which were printed in German, English, Russian, Portuguese, French, and Italian within his lifetime. Hoyle and Hickok shared the honor of being in the Poker Hall of Fame with only 40 other inductees. This is different from the WSOP Hall of Fame, which has a roster of 12 more members. To get in, you must have played in a certified competition, been a consistent and respected player, played for high stakes, or have taken actions to progress the game of poker and its influence over the population. And like so many poker hands, a lot of the inductees have fun nicknames too. Like John J.J. Luckbox Juwanda, Devilfish Dave Uliot, Dave Chip Reese, Action Dan Harrington, The Prince of Poker Scotty Nguyen, Fred Sarge Ferris, Bobby the Owl Baldwin, the Tiger Woods of Poker, No Home Jerome, Phil Ivey, Julius Little Man Popwell, and Barry Greenstein, the Robin Hood of Poker, because he donates his winnings to charity.
The World Series is a bunch of poker tournaments run by Caesars Entertainment Corporation, formerly Harrah's, and the main event is a no-limit Texas Hold'em tournament with a buy-in of $10,000. Founded in 1970, when Benny Binion invited seven popular players to the Horseshoe Casino for a tournament. With a definitive end time. Weird. At which time, Benny asked the remaining players to vote for the best. Also weird. Not surprisingly, they all elected themselves. Prompting another vote for the second best player. The grand old man of poker, Johnny Moss, won. He got a silver cup. As a precursor to the World Series of Poker, Puggy, Walter Clyde Pearson, invented the freeze-out tournament, one where you cannot rebuy, in the early 1950s, and brought the idea to nick the Greek Dodalos, Thomas Amarillo Slim Preston Jr., Doyle Texas Dolly Brunson, and Benny Binion. Puggy placed second in the World Series of Poker two years in a row, losing to Johnny Moss in 1971 and Amarillo Slim in 1972 before toppling Johnny Moss in 1973. The first year the WSOP was filmed with commentary by Jimmy the Greek Snyder before CBS started to cover the sport in the late 1970s. Here are a few WSOP moments worth mentioning. For the final hand of the 1975 series, Brian the Sailor Roberts won with Hooks, Jack-Jack, over Bob Hooks, who had puppy-printed braggers, Jack Nine of Clubs. By the way, this question comes up all the time when tournaments get down to two players, so I will just end the argument now. In heads-up poker, the buck is the small blind. I've mentioned the next champion a few times today, Doyle Texas Dolly Brunson. As a young man, Doyle was quite an athlete, and the Minneapolis Lakers, now of Los Angeles, almost took him on as a player, but he suffered from knee injuries that kept him out of the NBA. Me too. Doyle was a five-card draw player before he had his knee problems and used his poker winnings to pay medical bills joining illegal games in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana alongside contemporaries Sailor Roberts and Amarillo Slim. Brunson won back-to-back -back World Series main events with the hand named for him, 10-2, beating Ajax, Ace Jack, in 1976 and 8-5 in 1977. Doyle dubbed Texas Hold'em the Cadillac of poker and wrote what some consider to be the poker player's Bible, Super System and Super System 2. Because it was an insight to how he played, he believed the book ended up costing him thousands in winnings. Doyle was the first player to make a million dollars in a tournament 
and has won 10 WSOP bracelets alongside Johnny Chan and Phil Ivey. But all three pale in comparison to the poker brat Phil Hellmuth and his record 14 WSOP bracelets, the most WSOP caches in history, 95, and the most final tables, 49. Stu the Comeback Kid Unger is tied with Johnny Moss in WSOP main event victories, also winning two years in a row. In 1980, his suited laborers Billy D. Williams, 4-5 of spades, won against Doyle Brunson's slap shot, a 7. And a year later, the kid suited Aqua Rocket Queen, ace queen of hearts, won over Perry Green's countdown, 10-9. Stewie won another main event 16 years later, beating John Strimp's Ace-8 with Ace-4. In the 1982 World Series of Poker, Jack Strauss was down to one single $500 chip, but turned his fortune around and won the whole competition with bookends, Ace-10, over a decked-out Ace-4, held by Dewey Tomko, who has played in every World Series of Poker since 1974 and has the longest streak for doing so. Tom McAvoy was an early advocate for getting smoking banned in card rooms, thank you, sir, and his 1983 World Series of Poker victory was won with Pocket Ladies over Rod Pete's decked-out Kojak. King Jack. Gentleman Jack Keller had dimes, 10-10 or Bo Derrick, over Brian Wolford's suited 6-4 Heartbreaker in 1984. Johnny Chan, aka the Orient Express or the Great Wall of China, has also won the main event two years in a row. In 1987, his ace-nine offsuit beat Frank Henderson's Broken Aces, or Sailboats, 4-4. And Chan's winning the following year was another puppy print braggers, Jack-nine of clubs, versus sly Eric Seidel's Queen-seven. This hand was featured in the poker movie Rounders a decade later. But before the Matt Damon Cinematic Card Classic, Henry Orenstein patented a device credited as, quote, single-handedly responsible for the success of poker today, end quote. The lipstick hole camera. Making the game far more interesting to watch on TV by giving viewers at home a glimpse of professional player strategies by showing you their hands as they gamble. In 2001, Dewey Tomko got second place again. His Alan Alda got cracked by Juan Carlos the Matador Mortensen's puppy print king-queen marriage. Scattered curiosity, nobody has ever won the World Series of Poker main event with pocket aces. Jennifer Harmon is the first lady to win two WSOP bracelets in 2000 and 2002. And though he has never won a WSOP main event, Kid Poker, Daniel Negreanu, 
has the most career winnings in poker history, according to the Global Poker Index. One last thing about poker I love is that, unlike most professional sports, anyone of legal age can play in the World Series of Poker if they have $10,000 to enter. And as much as I would love to play it one day, I don't think I could ever justify spending so much money and would probably play too tight. I would have to win my entry by a satellite tournament. And lucky for me, the World Series of Poker has several charity events every year where you can enter a $250 totally tax-deductible tournament to win a seat to the World Series. And just to give you an idea of the endurance needed to even cash in the tournament... Each of the 7,874 entrants in the 2018 World Series of Poker main event started with 50000 in chips, the first round small blind was $75, big blind $150, with blinds going up every two hours, and five rounds were played each day with an hour-long dinner break. In total... 1,182 players got paid out starting on day four of the tournament at level 16 with small blinds at $3,000, big blinds at $6,000, plus a $1,000 ante. The lowest payout was $15,000, with that amount increasing in dinero every 102 knockouts with the top prize of $8.8 million going to John Sin's suited puppy print Kojak, King Jack of Clubs, over Tony Miles, Queen 8 off, who took home the second prize of $5 million after the two men played heads up for 10 hours, 16 hours less then my longest stretch on a table at the poker room at the Taj in Atlantic City after recouping a $1,500 loss. 26 hours of play to break even. I haven't set foot in that place since, and I am a better man for it. If this episode has piqued your interest, there are countless free apps for your smartphone where you can play poker without spending any money at all. And make sure you set the computer to the expert level so you can get a better sense of real play. Let me know how you do. You can always keep connected to the show on Twitter at Albert Einstone for daily curiosities. Shuffle up and deal. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show